0: This is Just Sold with Brent McIntosh of uh, the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. My name is Bryn Griffiths and joining us as always is Brent McIntosh. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Interesting topic today.
1: A little different and, yes. and hopefully something that uh, people you know, haven't really thought of or hopefully will never have to think of, uh, to be honest, because it, it might not be fun for, for those people who need this service, but a very important service nonetheless.
0: So who we got on the
1: big shoe? Joining us from and uh, Company, uh, Desmond West Chow. Desmond, how are you? I'm good, Brent. How are you? Really well. And now you do something um, in the bankruptcy and insolvency world. Is that correct?
2: That is, yeah. I'm what's called a licensed insolvency
1: trustee. And, and so the, if somebody's calling and needing your services, things probably aren't great in their world at that particular time.
2: In many cases, yeah, but uh, what we can offer, and then the great thing about what we do is that uh, we sort of provide that light at the end of the tunnel. When when there are not many other options, yep. um, we, we can still provide something that lets people get out from under the, the burden of debt.
1: That sounds great. Well, before we talk about that, let's find out a little bit more about you. Desmond, tell us about yourself.
2: Sure. So I was uh, born and raised in Edmonton, so i uh, been here for a little while. Um, I married my wife, Haley, uh, we've got three little kids, one, three, and five. So I'm pretty busy with them at home. Wow. Yeah. What do you do for fun? Uh, big things are, uh, I'm a big skier. Uh, can only have, do that so many months of the year, probably too many months for most people. And so to try to stay in shape for the ski season, uh, I'm a cyclist and I'm also a a hopeless Oilers fan as well. (laughs) Born and raised in Edmonton.
1: Awesome. Uh, Well, let's talk about the bankruptcy and insolvency world. How does one end up there? How did you end up in that world?
2: Sure. So um, I'm actually one of the many multi-generational trustees. So my father is actually a trustee and that's how I know about the business. Um, Growing up, I had no idea what he did. I couldn't explain it until probably my second or third day in the industry myself. Um, but I knew he was able to provide a, a comfortable living for us. I knew that he helped people. And so that's how I got into it. Um, another path that is quite often uh, a way that people get into it is they'll work for a big accounting firm, um, accounting firms that do much more than just accounting. They'll have audits and um, you know tax type uh, departments. And quite often when things might be a little bit slower or things um, uh, they, they might need a little bit more help on the insolvency side of things quite often an accountant might get exposed to the insolvency department. So those are kind of the two main ways that people get involved. A lot of uh, multi-generational trustees these days, and then uh, a lot of accountants kind of making the shift a bit later in their career uh, in the big big uh, accounting firms.
0: Desmond, I have to ask you this. Some people are pretty calm when it comes to this sort of thing. Some people would be maybe a little... A little more on edge. Uh, you have to have a really good uh, temperament, I'm guessing, to be able to deal with people who uh, are the high on, on the edge type people.
2: Absolutely, that That's a good point. Um, there, there was a, a period in my career very early when I got into the business where I dealt with a, a particular couple that, you know, when they came to me, um, they they were incredibly stressed out and it really manifested itself physically. You know, you could tell they looked tired. They didn't look like the most healthy people. Um, I ended up having another meeting with them about a year into the process, and I barely recognized them. And because it was early in my career, you know, I, I knew exactly who they were. Yeah. And, and the stress that got lifted off their shoulders was huge in terms of the temperament. Like you mentioned, um, absolutely. Like I like I said in the beginning, um, quite often when people come to us, they don't even know that there's a way out. Um, they they uh, you know, have a feeling that they're gonna be under this rock forever and there's nothing they can do. And so uh, absolutely, there's a lot of stress that we deal with and uh, a really tough situation. So yeah, keeping people calm, going through it logically is, is a big part of our job, especially in the very beginning when the first couple of times we meet people.
1: What a great story. What type of education or licensing do you need?
2: Yeah. So prerequisites start with either uh, a relevant accounting degree or a undergraduate degree. And then from there, you're able to enter into the program called the CIRP qualification program. And CIRP is what our our designation is. And that stands for chartered insolvency and restructuring professional. It's a two-year program to get through this. There are three courses uh, concluded with a final exam called the competency-based national um, national insolvency exam. Yeah. Uh, it's about two years is, is kind of the bare minimum to get through this program and, and to be eligible to write this test. You have to have 2,400 hours of relevant work experience while you go through it. Once you get your CIRP designation, then you're invited by the federal government to sit the oral board examination. And that examination was what allows you to call yourself a licensed insolvency trustee. So um, the designation program first, followed by a a licensing exam by the federal government.
1: Can you give us a brief explanation of all of the services that you provide?
2: Of course. So trustees in general will um, administer formal insolvencies for both individuals and businesses. In our firm, Gothen Company, we really specialize on the consumer side of things. That's what our main focus is. Uh, But in a city like Edmonton, and a province like Alberta, lots of individuals that might have some debt issues also have a company that they're running. So we naturally flow a little bit into the corporate side. In my firm in particular, the two main things that we do are uh, proposals and bankruptcies for individuals. Um, And and really our role is to, um, as a federally regulated professional, to provide advice and services to individuals and businesses that are dealing with debt problems. The result of that tends to be the proposals and bankruptcies in most cases.
1: And and maybe you can describe just a, a typical
2: client. Sure. There really is no typical. Um, we get uh, individuals that have troubles with debt from all walks of life. The only commonality is that they owe somebody money. Um, you know, it can really vary from people that uh, what I think lots of people consider. Um, when they aren't in that situation, which is people that mismanage money. And obviously we get a portion of people that that are in that situation, but we have people that um, have fallen ill or been injured at work and and have big changes to their income. Uh, We've got lots of folks that have marital breakdowns, And so, um, you know, you go from a a two-income household to a one-income household. Uh, That's a big reason that people end up filing uh, business owners, that things went south, you know, the the industries slow down or collapse, you know, there really is rent to every walk of life that we see. There's no any typical client.
0: Desmond, what's the difference between, uh, I guess, personal bankruptcy and a consumer proposal? Is there a difference there? Absolutely, so
2: the the very context of what you're doing in a consumer proposal versus bankruptcy is the main difference. Uh, A bankruptcy is really a, uh, a way to extinguish your debts and what you pay and what you do through the process is all formulated based on your income and expenses. What a consumer proposal is, is it's a settlement offer to your creditors. And so instead of following those bare minimum formulas, you offer a little bit more to your creditors. There's a bit of a negotiation process that we go through. And then at the end of the day, you don't have to go through that bankruptcy. And so you get to have a a little bit um, less severe of a credit rating. Your assets remain completely in your control, which a lot of people like. Um, And then the process um, allows more flexibility for for lots of folks in terms of being self-employed, as well as what they do with their funds at the end of each month, as long as they're maintaining the the basic monthly payments that correspond with that settlement offer.
1: Where do those numbers come from? How do you decide how much you're going to offer?
2: Uh, In a proposal, um, there's kind of two main aspects that we look at. The first one is that we always have to consider what creditors would get if someone were to go bankrupt. So, we, we look at a formula, it's referred to as the superintendent's guideline uh, on surplus income. And so there's a, a formula the federal government puts out based on household income, uh, number of people in the household, so how many people you have to support is a really important aspect. And then particular expenses are taken into account. Things like support payments, medical condition expenses, things that might be above and beyond, but really there's no discretion on. Um, and in fact, they're called non-discretionary expenses. Uh, That formula dictates what's contributed to a bankruptcy, as well as how we look at assets. There's exemptions that we look at, we look at if there's money owed on those assets, and that kind of gives us a baseline of, this is the minimum creditors get if bankruptcy is the way to go. In a proposal, we're gonna use that as the first um, aspect, making sure that we're offering creditors a bit more. If we're not offering them more, they're likely just gonna opt to go with a bankruptcy. And then the second thing we've gotta look at, Brent, when we make that proposal offer, is the reasonableness of cash flow. Uh, A creditor at the end of the day is likely not getting paid in full for what they're owed. And so they wanna see that they're getting a reasonable offer based on the individual's cash flow. So if you're spending uh, a whole whack of money on on something considered extravagant, creditors probably aren't gonna take that proposal and they'll ask for for more to be paid because they really don't wanna be financing um, your expensive habits at the end of the day. That's right. Is this something that somebody can do on their own? It isn't. Uh, the only way to go through a proposal or a bankruptcy is that it has to be administered by a trustee. So uh, there are many, well, there's about 1,000 trustees, maybe about 1,200 across the country. Uh, we all work on the, the federal legislation of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, but it is something that has to be administered by uh, a regulated individual or professional like myself. And so
1: if somebody's going down this road, when should they call you? Is, is, there something, is it ever too early or is it too late?
2: Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say it's too early. Um, there might be situations where I might send people away to get more information. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are situations when people might know there's a big debt coming, and the most common thing I'll see here is uh, if there's a big tax debt coming. Someone has you know, five, 10 years of taxes they haven't filed, for example, and they suspect they're gonna owe something, but they don't know what they're gonna owe, whether it's gonna be 50 or $150,000. Um, I might send them away and say, you know, figure out what the issue is. And I can really give you a good idea of what the solution will look like. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that might be something on the too early side. I never think that there's a too late, but I find that the longer people wait, the fewer options that we can give them. If they get to a point where, um, you know, they continue to try to borrow or the interest continues to build, or, you know, they get to a point where their creditors are taking legal action and garnishing income and stuff like that we might have so much urgency to restore their full paychecks that we might not have a lot of options to get those taxes filed, for example, or, um, you know, things of that nature. So I don't think there's an ever too late, but I think the later the longer people wait when they know there's an issue, the fewer options we might be able to present.
0: Desmond is, is it a fine line between a frustration for you and satisfaction for you when you're dealing with people? Because I got to think for, Somebody who's in uh, in a deep deep hole, it's uh, it's got to work out that way. You can really help a lot of people here. Um,
2: Yeah, I I think the for the most part, I mean, like any job, there's going to be frustrations. Um, You know, it's uh, it's just a natural part of the fact that uh, it's a job, it's work. But at the end of the day, like I said, I mean, and part of the big reason that I got into this industry is that um, at, at the end of the day, you really are people's last hope, right? That you're the thing that that, um, can truly help them out when there's really not much else for them. And so um, primarily it's satisfaction in in the job. Uh,
1: Let's talk about the process of a file when somebody comes in. um, Maybe you can kind of just give us a step by step of what would happen.
2: Sure. Um, First step, which is a really big one for most people is to contact us. A lot of people, it takes quite a while to really figure out that they need some help. Um, once they contact us, though, we'll set up a, what we call an assessment. And this is the first step in what we're regulated in doing. And what an assessment really is, Brent, is it's a, a meeting where we go over the financial situation of the individual contacting us. We get really good information, we get details, we really figure out the problem. And then our obligated duty is just to present options. We provide the merits and consequences of various options, not just what we do, but we're required to talk about things that. Um, we don't do it. And, and quite often, some of my uh, favorite meetings are when I can tell people, you don't need me. You can do this on your own and this is how you go do it. Yeah. Um, if they do need a, something that we do, a proposal or bankruptcy, then we start the process of preparing to file. So they're going to provide us um, some you know, hard facts and information. We might look through some, some documentation and some paperwork to try to figure out the legality of some of the loans. Uh, and then we're at a point where we can prepare to file. Um, filing is when we're actually signing on the documents, we send them to the superintendent of bankruptcy, which is our government regulator, and that's the day the file begins. Now, depending on what type of file it is, the administration can look a little bit different. In a proposal, all of our work is upfront. We do the negotiations, we deal with the voting on the proposal, trying to figure out what creditors are going to accept or not. And then once we have an accepted proposal, uh, then it's just about compliance. There's a couple of meetings that uh, individuals have to attend, and primarily people are making monthly payments. Uh, at the end of that process, uh, so once the full settlement offer is paid, they've attended their, their meetings, then they're done their duties, and then we have one final step of discharge. In the bankruptcy, there's a bit more ongoing work. Um, once the file is, is sent into the superintendent of bankruptcy and we have that formal filing date, There's some compliance stuff. So people have to send in statements on a monthly basis so that I can calculate their payment. They've got to make their monthly payments and they've also got to attend their meetings. We'll also deal with assets during that time. And then in bankruptcy, we get to the discharge process. And this can go a couple of different ways. Most people end up getting either an automatic discharge or a conditional discharge, which is um, you're done at that point in time or you have a few more things to do. In some situations, uh, when, when people aren't able to complete everything that they do, then we might have to extend the file and, and we, we continue in the bankruptcy process until eventually they are done everything and how long will this take
1: that sounds like a lot of stuff by the way
2: <laughs> yeah there's a bit on the background that we are doing um the minimum is nine months wow. so uh okay. someone that's filed a bit filing a bankruptcy for the first time and has income below the thresholds can be through that process and get their discharge nine months after they filed um we can do the pre-filing uh, preparation work in as little as a week typically is our goal. So nine months in a week, and then I've got a couple of months of approvals and work after that. Uh, proposals are over maximum five years dictated by legislation. And again, coming back to that point that creditors typically aren't getting paid in full, they usually want to see a five-year payment term. So most of our proposals are, are set for five years, although many folks end up completing them uh even a little bit early, but lots of them end up completing them in three, four years.
0: What if you bounce back, if you're in a situation like this, can you pay that off early or is it best just to to run the course of five years?
2: Yeah, um, I I get this question a lot, Bryn, and my advice is um, prioritize what's important to you because at the end of the day, the proposal doesn't charge any additional interest. There's no additional cost in a proposal to be in it longer. And so if it's more important to build up your emergency fund, or put some money away for buying a house or an investment, then do that. Um, but if you want to get rid of your trustee and the proposal and put all the debt behind you and get rid of us first, well, then that's, that's a perfectly reasonable option in my mind as well. Um, in a proposal, you can complete it early. Uh, in a bankruptcy, there are the minimum timelines that you have to be bankrupt. And so, uh, as I mentioned, nine months is the minimum. And then if you have a higher income or you've been bankrupt more than once before, then it could be a longer period of time as the minimum. And how much is this going to cost? Uh, The minimum cost is typically $1,600 of my office. So that would be, again, a first-time bankrupt with um, income below the guideline, which is about $2,200 for a single individual, $2,200 net per month. Um, But it can kind of go up from there uh, to to really, um, technically it could be an unlimited amount from there and it's gonna be based upon, again, um, household income, assets, and then there is gonna be a bearing of how much debt there is. Uh, When we're offering a proposal, we've gotta look at reasonable offers, and so the more that you owe in a proposal, Mm -hmm. quite often, the more you might end up paying.
1: Okay, and is there a maximum
2: for amount owing, or even a minimum to start a file? There is a minimum under the, uh, the bankruptcy and insolvency act so the legislation you work under uh, you're not uh, legally considered insolvent unless you owe a thousand dollars so it is a very low threshold Okay. there is no maximum amount of debt that we can deal with and, and uh, we've dealt with it all across the board
1: so if you um claim bankruptcy for example can you ever buy a house again can you ever get a credit card
2: again yeah that's a very common question um Absolutely. Uh, in bankruptcy, you typically have to wait till you get discharged to be granted any new credit. And this isn't a, uh, a legal rule, but this is just policy by the banks. They typically don't want to give out any new debt to someone that is currently in bankruptcy. So you have to get that discharge first. Okay. Um, and, and the best way that I can describe it, especially with a bankruptcy, is that you're almost starting out as if you're 18 again, as far as your credit goes. The one thing to remember though, is that not a lot of 18 year olds are filing a bankruptcy. And so you have a lot of things behind you at that point, like typically an established career, you probably have a bunch of assets already. You're not looking to buy your first car or anything like that. So you're almost starting with a a fresh slate, especially if it's a first bankruptcy or first filing. Um, But you have to start small again: small credit cards, secured credit cards, and then you can start to build up beyond that. In a proposal tends to be much easier. You can usually start to get new credit very quickly after filing um i, I see people get uh, low limit or secured credit cards months after they're filing uh, and then car loans are quite often available during a proposal uh, mortgages i'd say shortly after they're, they're done but it's going to depend upon um what else they've done to rebuild that credit has re that history
0: hey one last one for me we've gone through a really tough 18 to 24 months here with covid and that type of thing the economy's been struggling is it it would only make sense that this is a really busy time for you, but is it turning out that way? I would agree with you completely, Bryn, that the results have been much different. Mm. Uh, the past uh, 18
2: months or so, or however long it's been since about March, April of 2020, uh, I guess we're, we're at 18 months now, um, have been the lowest insolvency rates nationwide in some 20, 25 years or so. Uh, there's a lot of different theories about it. Um, I think that the main competing theories that a lot of people are coming up with are uh, there were a lot of widespread government support, um, lots of help given by the government. For a lot of people, it might not have been enough, but for others, it was more than they needed. And and, and uh, quite often, it, it, uh, I've even seen reports from uh, one from on Monday from Statistics Canada that said a lot of people actually ended up ahead of where they were from March 2020 financially. Um, The other side of it is that there was a lot of widespread creditor relief being given. I'm sure everybody remembers, although it seems like a distant memory now, um, that almost every bank would give you six months of mortgage payments deferred uh, back last spring. So um, that was a big aspect. And then a third aspect, which isn't talked about quite as much, but we saw on a very practical basis was that for all but the most urgent matters, the courthouses were closed for a number of months which built up a lot of backlog. And what this means is that creditors weren't able to take any legal action for, for quite some time. So they couldn't get judgments on their debt, which in turn means that they weren't garnishing any wages and they weren't registering writs on anybody's home, which are often quite big factors that push people in to come see someone like us. So it is a little bit counterintuitive. Almost everybody is surprised when I tell them that, yeah. um, and trustees are a little bit perplexed as well. Until you kind of sit back and you start to look at things and say, "Okay, well now this starts to make sense." But yeah, it has been um, the lowest insolvency numbers in in uh, quite some time.
1: Well, that's fascinating. We'll we'll finish up with just maybe a couple of tips that you can give our listeners sure. um, to avoid a personal bankruptcy.
2: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, there's not not going to be anything that I'm going to tell you here that's going to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> um, the basic things are um, budgeting and cash flow as well as being prepared for the unexpected. So the most basic thing here is you got to make sure that you're spending less than you're earning. You got to make sure you're putting some money away and although there are definitely going to be unexpected things coming in life, if you're prepared for them, you can usually stay out of out of trouble. Um yeah, not not much new that I have to say there. No,
1: savvy. Well, read read the wealthy barber. Isn't that what uh, <laughs> It, exactly. Yeah. He's got some great
2: advice in that book.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Uh, tell people how they can get a hold of you.
2: Sure. So, you know, same basic ways as, as most businesses these days. Uh, phone number, 780 435 5110. Email is just simply desmond, D E S M O N D, at goth.ca. And then my firm's website, gothandcompany.com, uh, has all of that contact information, not just for me, but for the rest of my office as well.
0: Desmond, thanks for your time. And Brent, how do people get a hold of you? Well, if
1: somebody would like to buy a house or sell their current one, they can reach our team directly at 780-464-0075, or they can find us anywhere on the internet, macintoshgroup.ca.
0: Guys, thanks for your time. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm Brent Griffiths. He's Brent Macintosh, and we'll see you next time.